Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, December 11th, and we're talking about the investment banks. That's Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Matt, great to have you back. Hey, always good to be here. Fantastic. So, folks, last week, we really kind of, for the first time, laid out the banking framework that Ana developed a couple of years ago and used it on Bofi. And if you are listening to this episode and have not listened to that one, I highly recommend going back, listening to that episode first, because we really go into detail and kind of talk through what each section of Onnit's analysis is, and why we sort of pick things in it, and what they mean. In this one, we're going to kind of head-to-head these banks a lot faster, and then we're going to kind of go into detail and both pick which one we prefer of the two. So, if anything is opaque in this episode, highly recommend you going back to that one. The other thing that I'll throw out there is, you know, I've talked a lot about how Honest Framework is really useful for me and for informing how I think about banking. And Matt, you've talked about that too. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key things to highlight, though, with any system is that no system can cover 100% of circumstances. Onnit's system is really designed for, to some extent, a traditional bank. And Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs very much are not traditional banks. And so, this is also a chance for us to sort of highlight, I wouldn't call it a weakness, but some some areas where Onnit's framework can't provide for every possible outcome. And so, that's when you have to sort of adapt it and change it over. So, that's sort of the idea behind this week's episode, and we'll hop right in. Of course, the first question I think anyone's going to ask is, uh, well, what is an investment bank, and why is it different from a more traditional bank? Matt? Well, traditional banks, if you heard our episode last week, we went into a nice discussion of this, as Michael said. But traditional banks generally make most of their money from lending out money. They take in deposits at a lower cost, lend money out at a higher cost, and profit from the spread between the two. Investment banks are, I would actually call them a little more fee-oriented. They tend to be a little light on loans. Um, Investment banking includes things like M&A, advisory, um, equity underwriting. Uh, Investment banks are the ones that bring IPOs to market. Mm -hmm. Um, Wealth management, especially for high net worth clients. Um, Goldman and Morgan Stanley both are in the trillions in wealth management assets. And um, things just like trading and uh, investment banks make investments themselves. That's a big part of both of their business models. Um, But I think it's a lot of more fee-based types of financial activities than traditional banks. Yes. And so, when thinking about the first part of the banking framework that we've been talking about, which is sort of, what does the bank do? As you noted, one of the first things that immediately jumps out, loans are not a high percentage of assets. For Goldman Sachs, it's about 7%. For Morgan Stanley, it's about 12%. And so, just with that, you can tell this is a very different breed of bank from what we were talking about last week. Uh, Another point that I'll throw out there is that on the deposits side, so this is a liability, 
Um, deposits make up a relatively small percentage of their liabilities as well, about 16% for Goldman, about 20% for Morgan Stanley. One of the things that that means, you can immediately know, is that if a bank doesn't have a lot of its liabilities and deposits, it's going to have to get that money some other way, usually either by issuing debt or by issuing stock. Yeah, you can see um, the difference in the numbers between deposits and other liabilities just on their balance sheet. Goldman, for example, has only about 15% of, or 16% of its liabilities are coming in the form of deposits. It's 20% for Morgan Stanley. And both have substantially more in just kind of unsecured long-term debt. Um, Goldman, 25% comes from long-term debt, and actually about the same for Morgan Stanley. So these are kind of more debt-reliant businesses than deposit-reliant businesses, which is one reason why they're not quite as efficient as commercial banks, which we'll get to in a little bit, because when you issue debt, it generally comes at a higher rate than you have to pay for deposits just from you know mom-and-pop consumers. One of the other things that will really highlight this to you is when you're looking at the income statement, you look at revenue. So for a traditional bank, net interest income, which comes from loans, is usually going to be a high percentage. For Goldman Sachs, it's only about um, 10% of total net revenues. And Morgan Stanley actually lost a little bit on net interest income last quarter. Instead, what you see is, um, for Goldman, you know, 20-plus percent in investment banking, market making, and uh, about 20% in uh, M&A. And then on the Morgan Stanley side, there's a lot on in, again, investment banking and trading. This is kind of where they make their money. It's their bread and butter, and it's very different from your traditional banks. So, with that in mind, let's talk about part two of the banking framework, which is how expensive is the bank? And of course, the two things that you want to look at here are price to tangible book value and price to earnings. Right. Um, these are both kind of similar in both respects. Um, Price to tangible book value, Goldman comes in right around 1.4. Morgan Stanley is a little more expensive at about 1.6. Price to earnings, these both actually sound really cheap compared to the rest of the S&P. Goldman's about 13 times earnings. Morgan Stanley's about 14.5. Yeah, Morgan Stanley's a little bit more on the expensive side just just by those two metrics. Sure. But again, any, any two metrics don't really tell you the full story. So let's go deeper. Absolutely. So, part three then, what is the bank's earnings power? So, uh, return on equity. Uh, I, I tend to like to look at both last quarter and the trailing 12 months just because one quarter to another, there can be some weird volatility. Trading, uh, trailing 12 months usually gets you some sense of the longer term differences, if any. Right. Um, in this case, generally for any kind of bank, you want to look for a return of equity of about 10%. That's generally what they need to really cover their cost of capital and you know, make money for shareholders. Um, in Goldman's case, they're almost at 10. They're about, they were 9.8 both for the last quarter and for the trailing 12 months. Morgan Stanley was 8.9 for last quarter and 9.1 for the trailing 12 months. So they're both, the way I would kind of interpret that, not too big of a difference. They're both kind of almost in line with industry benchmarks, but not quite. Right. And of course, net interest margin isn't going to be that helpful in this case, since so little of their money comes from loans. So let's hop right on over to efficiency ratios, which, uh, again, as a quick refresher, are 
essentially a sign of how good the bank is at controlling its own costs. Right. Efficiency ratios, it's actually a really easy metric to calculate. All you have to do is take the bank's non-interest expense and divide it by its total revenue for whatever period of time you're looking at. Um, lower is better because you're essentially seeing how much a bank is spending for every dollar in revenue they're making. Um, in Goldman's case, for the the patent, the last quarter, we're just about 64% efficiency ratio, meaning that for every dollar in revenue they generated, they spent about 64 cents, not including interest, which, as Michael said, it isn't really a very big factor here. Right. Um, Morgan Stanley is actually a little less efficient. They are about 73% for the last quarter, and so they spent 73 cents for every dollar in revenue they generated, which could you know, explain the discrepancy in return on equity that we just talked about. Right. So the fourth piece then is how much risk is the company, or in this case, the companies, are the companies, taking on to achieve those earnings. And really, non-performing loans is usually useful, not terribly useful here, since such a small percentage of both banks come from loans. And again, this is just highlighting sort of how you have to adapt a framework to really um, whichever bank you're you're looking at. But assets over equity is about 11 in both cases. And so what that means is that they're both, eh, all things considered, probably about correctly leveraged. Right. With investment banks also, it's as far as risk goes, it's important to mention that kind of some of their, they have a few different lines of business, some of which kind of complement each other. Um, investment banking consists of, you know, M&A advisory, equity and debt underwriting. Then you have things like trading and wealth management, which really offset each other depending on what the economy is doing. Right now, trading revenue is absolutely terrible, especially on the fixed income side of things. And the reason for that is that the economy and the market are doing so well and volatility has been so low that trading volume has just kind of fallen off a cliff. The flip side of that is things like wealth management are performing extremely well because most of these the way they make money on this is fee-based, and if you're, the market keeps going up and up, the assets under management for both of these firms keeps going up and up and up, and they're going to be making more fee income. So that's what I kind of mean by one tends to offset the other. Um, if On the other side, if, say, wealth management revenue went down because the market was performing terribly, the trading volume could spike. Volatility, If volatility spikes, trading volume would get a lot higher, and they start generating some more money that way. So... These banks are kind of, in a way, set up to make money no matter what the market's doing, which is kind of a point to, definitely a point to know if you're looking at investment banks. And particularly in terms of thinking about their risk, because people always talk about wanting recession-proof businesses. And of course, I'm not aware of any recession-proof businesses, because they all are affected by a recession in some way, shape, or form. But the fact of the matter is that these offsets really do help reduce that risk. Okay, so we'll turn to the non-number stuff. Again, everything we just looked at is a snapshot in time. And what you really need to understand that on a deeper level is then to sort of dig in and really look at those businesses, their growth opportunities, their growth threats, and sort of what the overall opportunity for both companies looks like. But first, we're going to take a moment and have a quick note from Rocket Mortgage. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. 
Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Okay, so we've looked at our snapshot in time. Let's now turn to the qualitative stuff. We have a pretty clear idea of where the banks are. Now the question is, where are they going? And I think one of the key things that we really need to emphasize here is that in in both cases, both banks are looking to become more traditional in a lot of ways. They both are seeking to grow their deposits, and they are both seeking to give out more loans. Yeah, and they're both doing it in kind of different ways. I'll start with with Goldman here. Um, Goldman has gotten into online banking to try to compete, or to attract low-cost deposits, which are cheaper than debt financing, but they still offer some of the most competitive rates available online. Their online bank is called Marcus. Uh, the Marcus platform is actually getting into unsecured personal lending. It launched last October, so a little over a year ago. And out of all the major you know, unsecured lending platforms, Lending Club, things like that, Marcus was the quickest one to get to a billion dollars in loan volume. Um, Goldman has the distinct advantage that they have enough capital available that they can grow it as quickly as they want to. But they're trying to kind of do it in a different way. Um, I actually spoke to the head of Marcus not long ago, and he told he was trying to explain to me how they are trying to grow it in the right way, trying to kind of be different than the rest, adapt to consumers, uh, to consumer preferences, and kind of really take a different approach to lending. Um, I can tell you just from speaking to some of their customers that their their application process is smoother and quicker than pretty much any of the other guys. Um, the interest rates, people have gotten more competitive than the others because they can afford to kind of run at a slightly more compressed margin than, say, a lending club. Um, so they're re- this is really opening up a new kind of revenue stream for Goldman. Um, in Morgan Stanley's case, they are really emphasizing trying to digitize wealth management in order to open up kind of their platform to more traditional clients, not just the ultra high net worth people. Um, their robo advisor, which by the way, we did an episode about robo advisories not long ago. Um, I'm sure Michael will be happy to send the link to anyone who's interested. Sure, send us an email, industryfocus <laughs> at fool.com. And uh, <laughs> Morgan Stanley's robo advisory firm just, or the robo advisory platform just launched. Um, so that's one way they're really trying to branch out kind of into more traditional areas of banking and investing. Um, and Morgan Stanley is actually about to launch a digital mortgage platform in the first half of 2018 um, with their goal of trying to get their own customers to get mortgages through them. They kind of see that as an untapped financial need that they can meet better than better for their customers, you know, integrating it where they already have their wealth management accounts and, and other assets. So, like you said, both of these banks are kind of trying to branch out, but they're both doing it in pretty different ways. Yes, and it's interesting because, and this highlights sort of an overall thing that's happening across banks, where everyone is talking about digital. But what's interesting about Goldman and Morgan is that they both seem to really be living into that. So the Marcus platform, the way Goldman executives describe it, is they're saying, listen, it's a business that everyone has seen before, (laughs) right? Unsecured uh, consumer lending is not a new thing. 
but we are trying to really build this platform with a consumer focus. We're not trying to grow it to $20 billion tomorrow by taking on a lot of terrible risk. You know, I, I think they mentioned that their average FICO scores were something around 700. So that's a pretty good and relatively low risk group of people that they're lending to. And their goal really being to differentiate by having more capital than the fintech firms so they can grow faster. And then on the flip side, treating this really as a digital and consumer focused initiative. So they're not trying to sort of combine a lot of other things together into one platform, but really just launch this and make sure that it works, which they view as a an advantage over the the other institutions. Right. Um, in addition, Morgan Stanley, just kind of to mention another growth avenue, Morgan Stanley is really emphasizing wealth management. Their wealth management business is much bigger than Goldman's, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I want to say about twice the size. But they're, they're not only trying to grow it, but like you said, with the digital theme, they're trying to do it a lot more efficiently. Like you said, the robo-advisory for clients who may want to kind of lower their fees. Um, just to kind of throw a, a couple figures out there, Morgan Stanley's wealth management business, which is not the highest margin business, which is kind of why they're not as efficient as Goldman, um, their wealth management business, their margin has gone from 9% to 22% since 2010. Um, they've reduced their branch count because of their new dig- their kind of more enhanced digital capabilities. And they're just really trying to not only grow it, but try to make it a lot more efficient. Whereas Goldman is trying to kind of remain the king of traditional investment banking, like M&A, where I believe they're still the number one in terms of market share. Yep. Um, equity and debt underwriting, I believe they're also number one in terms of market share. So these banks are going in slightly different directions. Um, Morgan Stanley estimates that their clients still have about over, over $2 trillion worth of assets, kind of with other asset managers, and they're kind of trying to bring some of that in. So if they're successful, that could be a you know big game changer for them. Yeah. And one of the things that we should also mention here is some ways in which they are very much the same. So one of them is that their assets under management have risen substantially in both cases, because, of course, the stock market has been doing so well. Now, this is due to a combination of both strong market performance. So, if you own a share of X stock that's you know, being managed by Morgan Stanley and that stock doubles in value, then lo and behold, Morgan Stanley's doubled how much there, how much uh, in terms of assets that they are managing on your behalf. But then the second piece is also net inflows. So that's people putting more money in to both Goldman and Morgan Stanley and saying, "Please manage this money too for me." And of course, one of those is much better long term for the bank than the other. Right. The um, assets under management that result uh, <clears throat> for Goldman right now, it's about a, a two to one mix of market performance and net inflows, meaning that about about two thirds of the, the gain they've seen in their asset management business has just been because the market's doing so well. Um, that's great, but then when the market falls, your assets under management go down by, you know, proportionally. Whereas net inflows, that's just kind of new new money coming in, just kind of adding to the pot. Regardless of what the market's doing, you're going to be better off relatively than you would have been, you know, without that money coming in. So net inflows kind of, in my mind, represents real growth in wealth management business. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think one of the other things that we should mention is that there are some incoming catalysts for the banking sector as a whole, potentially. Of course, one of them is that the Fed may be raising rates in a couple of days. We'll know more soon. The other is tax reform is a potential catalyst, because both of these banks have effective tax rates in the 30% range right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, we don't know exactly what tax reform is going to look like right now, but we're, it's pretty certain that if it passes, we're going to get a pretty big corporate tax cut. Uh, 20% is the rate that's been floated around. Now they're saying maybe 22, 25 to get it done. But even so, this could translate to billions of dollars in additional profit for the for banks and investment banks in general, because they don't quite get the benefit of the, the interest rate hikes that more traditional banks do. Right. So this could be a big catalyst going forward, um, especially if it actually gets down to 20% like they're proposing. Right. Now, whenever we're doing a versus of two different companies, it makes sense for us to talk about which one we prefer. So... Matt, do you want to lead off or do you want me to? I'll go ahead. Um, sure. Shoot. Which one is your preference? I like Goldman right now. I I can't honestly say I'm going to you know log off of here and buy either one tomorrow. Actually, I'm not allowed to. Right. But <laughs> out of the two, I would definitely prefer Goldman. I really like the direction they're going with the consumer lending platform. I uh, the, the gentleman in charge of it, his name is Harit Talwar. I'm a big fan of his, his kind of style and how he's how he's approaching it. Um, and not just that, Goldman looks a lot better from a valuation perspective at this point. Yeah, it's hard for me to turn down a stock that's cheaper and also has some very credible uh, growth opportunities. You know, it, it feels to me like Goldman is, in a lot of ways, diversifying very intelligently and. Like you, I really like the Marcus platform. I think that it is a potentially meaningful differentiator, and if they're able to attract all those deposits, then that will be a big thing for them. I also, as I've shared in the past, I only own one bank, and it's not either of these. It's it's Bofi. So, last week's episode is particularly interesting if anyone is curious about that company. But I think that both Goldman and Morgan have some good opportunities, but. Uh, as well, I would hand the advantage to Goldman. All right, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments? You can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. <laughs>